0: My wife, Jessie, and I have just come back from an Easter break, uh, and I was very pleased, actually, to come back and discover that someone's turned the heat on in Scotland. Um, It's been a great week to come back. Um, But while I was away, um, I I came across an interview with Ricky Gervais. Uh, You might know him from um, The Office, David Brent, uh, or many, many movies called Nights at the Museum, one, two, three, however many they got to. Um, He's also known as an atheist, um, quite an outspoken atheist. He doesn't believe in God. And I came across this interview with him at a chat show where, amazingly, they got onto that topic. And he was pushed and he said something really interesting. He said this He said, I call myself an atheist, but technically I'm an agnostic. That is, I don't actually know. I don't know for certain. Then he said, Everyone is really an agnostic. No one really knows. Because how could you ever prove that there was a God? Or prove that there wasn't a God? I wonder if you've got any sympathy with that view. Or you know people who do. One of my university mates, was he'd say exactly the same. He says, I'm not anti-God. And actually, given things like how fine-tuned and complex the universe is and how much dignity and morality humans seem to have instinctively. He he would say, actually, it's more likely than not there is a God. But when it comes to choosing which God in the supermarket of religions and ideas, well, how can anyone be sure, he'd say. So he just sticks with a kind of vague sense of a benevolent power somewhere out there, unknowable, beyond us. Maybe we've got friends or colleagues or neighbors who think like that. Maybe a few of us here think like that. It's been a great joy over recent months um, to have lots of folks from different nations coming along to Chalmers on Sunday mornings. Uh, And that means there's a range of cultural backgrounds amongst us. And maybe you grew up with a God who was only ever very vague, distant. Perhaps you're used to thinking of God a kind of no God or impersonal forces are the biggest things in the world. Maybe it's multiple gods, each with their own domain. Maybe it's many faces of the one divine presence, God in all things. I mean, there are a lot of options. And given that, should we just say we don't know, if we're honest? Maybe you came along to some of the Passion for Life stuff, or the Easter weekend events we had, and you heard amazing offers, amazing claims that Jesus can give eternal life, and you thought, well, that sounds great, but how could I actually be sure of that? All these people sitting around me, how are they sure of that? Are they really sure? Because if I walk around the corner and found a mosque, or a Hindu temple, or a New Age cafe, or a synagogue, or I just went to Waitrose and took a survey, well, there'd be loads of different views. Well, John's Gospel, which we're starting this morning and going through Um, a number of chapters of over this term, is an eyewitness account of Jesus' life and death that was written to testify that Jesus is the way to know. Jesus is the way to know about God, for sure. The reliable truth about God. In fact, John thinks that the, the witness statements he's compiling are enough to prove beyond reasonable doubt that Jesus is the way to know God, the way to have life, eternal life, knowing God personally. In a moment, I'll show that from chapter 1, hopefully, but just keep a finger there and flick to the back of the book and flick across to page 907, page 907. We're going to look at verse 30 on page 907, so it's the end of chapter 20, verse 30. Paul tells, uh, sorry, John tells us what he's doing in this book. Verse 13, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John is writing witness statements, evidence to produce belief, both initial belief and ongoing belief. If you're already a Christian, belief that Jesus really is who he says he is, and so we really can know God and have life knowing him. I love the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the Bible. I love them because they're so upfront about what they're trying to do. Sometimes people say, well, you shouldn't listen to them because they're biased. I mean, actually, that's not very sensible to say because all primary historical documents are biased. Of course they are, or else why would people bother to pay for papyrus? They must have had some reason why they wanted to write this down, but the gospel accounts are really honest about it. They say, look, this is what I'm trying to prove, this is what I'm trying to persuade you of. We'll see in a moment, John actually starts like that. Here's the big thing I'm trying to show you that Jesus really is the way you can know God. So the question is not whether they're biased, the question is, do they have any evidence for their bias? Is it justified? John's Gospel works a little bit like a court case. There's an opening statement, which we just read and we're about to study, and then there's an awful lot of evidence to prove the case. And then the closing statement we just read. You should have belief in Jesus, thinks John. So then, let's go back to that Ricky Gervais interview. He says, everyone's an agnostic, technically, No one really knows. So if John, the gospel writer, was interviewing Ricky Gervais, what would he have said? Would he have have agreed? We're all just guessing when it comes to God? Well, you're probably expecting me to say no. And I am going to say no, eventually. But just have a look, back in chapter 1, have a look at verse 18. Because actually John agrees a surprising amount with Ricky Gervais. Chapter 1, back on page 886, verse 18. John starts the verse saying this, No one has ever seen God. It's a striking thing, isn't it? That could be taken straight out of one of Richard Dawkins' uh, novels, books, or countless other celebrity atheist interviews. No one's ever seen God. All those different belief systems, all those different ideas many of them disagreeing, at the most fundamental about what the answer is. One God, no God, lots of gods, lots of faces of God. And how can you tell, how can you choose? Well, the reality is, no one's actually seen God. No one was there to watch the start of the universe, to witness the Big Bang, or was it the Big Crunch? Or was it a string of multiple universes, parallel existences? And when you look at how big the universe is, if there was someone who made it, well, how could we ever know someone that big or something that big? We're just finite, small. That person or thing would be infinite, way beyond us. We're, we're like kind of tiny ants in a, in a massive palace or cathedral. How could an ant ever get to know the king who designed it? How could Plato ever get to know my daughter? clay with the potter no one's ever seen god and actually the bible would say no one's ever seen god not just because we're really small and god's really big but because god's really pure and we're really not so all the way through the old testament repeatedly we're told the first bit of the bible that that no one can see god Moses once asked to see God and he had to be put behind a safety barrier and he only got to see the back of God after his glory had passed by. Isaiah saw the the hem of the robe of God in his temple and he was absolutely terrified by the sight. No one can ever see God, we're too small. No one can ever see God because we're impure. So maybe Ricky's right. Maybe we should just all say, well, I don't really know. Yes, you can call yourself an atheist if you don't like God. You can call yourself a theist or a Christian if you do like the idea of God. You can choose to live however you want, but don't claim that you know. And certainly don't try and persuade someone else of what's true. Just admit you don't have certainty. This is what I prefer to believe. The thing is with verse 18, John doesn't stop there, does he? Verse 18, no one has ever seen God... But then, and this is the big thing, the only God who's at the Father's side, he has made him known. That verse is referring to Jesus Christ. It's what the whole passage is about. It's what the whole book's about. He says, up to this point in history, there's never been a human who's seen God. No one was there in eternity past. No one watched the big Bang. No spies make it into heaven and come back to tell the story. No one sees the face of God and lives. But there was one person there alongside the Father. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And he has now made him known. That's the story of John's Gospel. That the guesswork is over. Agnosticism actually isn't an option anymore. Because the eternal Son of God, Jesus has made God known. You'll see if you want on the back of the handout, there's an outline of what, where we're going. Um, and this is point one and our big point. The eternal Son of God, called the Word here, it's just a name for Jesus. The eternal Son of God has made God known. Now before we dive into the details um, of verse one, I just want to explain the plan this morning. You'll see in, at the bottom of the outline, there's a little box saying structure. That explains to you what, what will be going on so you don't get confused. We're basically going to work from the outside in on this passage. So points 1, two, 3 aren't just in order. They're outside in, working into the middle. Um, so verses 1 to 5 and 16 to 18 are all about the eternal Son who makes God known. Then inside that, 6 to 9 and 14 to 15 verses, are how that eternal Son stepped into history. Stepped onto the planet, was witnessed by people. And then right in the middle, at the end of the talk, the most important bit, two responses to that fact. There's an eternal reality which became a historical reality and there are only two ways to respond to it. That's how John starts his gospel. So, let's begin with verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's a majestic introduction to this person called the Word. It is a name for Jesus, God's only Son. But I think by calling him the Word, we get our first clue that this passage is all about knowing God. This Son is God's self-disclosure, how God makes himself known to us. And look how qualified the Word is, Jesus is, to tell us about God. Because look where he's been. In the beginning, the Word was with God. That's echoing Genesis. You might remember, start of the Bible, in the beginning, God. And John's saying, let me flesh that out a bit more, in the beginning, God the Father and the Word, God the Son, and later in John's Gospel we'll hear about God the Holy Spirit. Three persons together as one God. Now theologians have called this the Trinity. Do you know that's short for tri three? Unity in one. Trinity. Triunity. The triune God. Three distinct persons: a father, a son, a spirit in one Godhead. Not three gods chatting to each other, one God in three persons. At which point we might well say, well, hang on, hang on, hang on. My head is really hurting, and it's only verse one. In fact, we're not even out of verse one yet. How can God be one and be three at the same time? I prefer to think of God as a bit simpler than that. But remember what I said about what John's gospel is. It's just a witness statement. It's testimony about the person John and the other apostles met. As in, it's not, here are some ideas we've come up with. Here are some kind of brilliant philosophical things to get your heads around. It's more, this is what God's actually like, because we met him. And unfortunately, God's so big that it will bend our brains at various points. God the Son was with God. And yet, still verse one, the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God and was God. I think it's easy for us to, to want to make that much simpler. To say, well, maybe it started with just one God, God the Father, and then maybe He made Jesus as like a sidekick, kind of the first thing He made. And then use Jesus to help make other things. Um, actually, lots of um, cults do that, and lots of different uh, views over history will um, teach that, and it is simpler. But John says it's just not true. Look at verse 2 to 3. He was in the beginning with God, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything that was made. John's trying to ram home this figure, the Word the Son of God, was actually God. So everything that was made was made by him. He was there before everything was made. So he can't have been the first thing that was made because everything that was made was made through him. He's not just the best creature. He's the uncreated creator. He's God. And we'll see plenty of evidence for that as we go through. It's mind-bending, but it's also... Massively relevant. That means that Jesus made your next door neighbor and you and me and any tree or animal that you enjoyed over Easter. As verse 4 puts it, in him was life. Jesus later says, John 6, the Father's granted that I have life in myself, self sustaining, eternally existent life. <clears throat> It's not that someone gives him life, it's that he has life, and so he can give it to others. At the tomb of Lazarus, Jesus says, come out, even though he's been dead four days, because I am the resurrection and the life. I'm God, the life giver. And not just life, verse 4, but light. We're back to the idea of knowing God. Jesus is God's self-disclosure. He's able to shed light on the God who's actually there. Or down in verse 17 and 18, the way it gets put is that the law was given through Moses, and that told us a lot about God. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one's ever seen God. Moses didn't get to. But the only God who's at the Father's side, he has made him known. So, Ricky Gervais, or anyone who thinks like him, you're half right. No one has ever seen God. No human being has has the right to say, I'm absolutely certain, because I've seen myself in eternity, from eternity past to eternity future, I've seen what God's like, apart from the Son, who was alongside the Father. The eternal Son at God's right hand. God Himself, the only God. Now that's all quite amazing. That's the top and tail of the passage. But the thing inside them is even more amazing. Point two this eternal Son of God stepped into human history as witnesses testify. This is verses 6 to 9 and 14 to 15. Let me read them. Verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. That's John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light but came to bear witness about the light. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. And then verse 14, even more startling, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So that eternal word, the eternal Son who existed before John the Baptist was ever conceived, or John the evangelist who wrote the gospel, before the universe even began, that word became flesh, took on a human nature so that he could walk around first-century Israel and have John the Baptist point to him. No wonder John's testimony, verse 15, was this. This was he of whom I said, he who comes befo- after me ranks before me because he was before me. It's an amazing claim. The next guy who walks along actually pre-existed the universe. It's extraordinary that the God who is infinite, omnipotent, omnipresent, eternal, stepped into history, into the cosmos he made. He took on flesh, and it wasn't like a temporary disguise. It wasn't like, I'll just wear this for a little bit. No, look how strongly John puts it, verse 14, the word became flesh. He took on humanity as a permanent reality. So Jesus now is 100%... Divine, always has been, always will be, but now also 100% human, permanently. It's another thing, like verse 1, that makes our brains bend. I spent years at theological college trying to get my head around this. How can, be, how can someone be simultaneously divine, so knows everything, all-powerful, and full of self-sustaining life, And genuinely human. Think of grace up here. Doesn't yet know much. Needs to eat, sleep, rest. Jesus became able to die. But remember, John's Gospel isn't written to suggest easy to digest theories about God, it's not just another option in the man made religious supermarket, it's a witness statement. This is the man we saw. I mean, we know he died. Our friend Thomas, Doubting Thomas, checked the wounds. He was definitely human, definitely dead. But actually, we know he's God. That's why cynical Thomas got down on his knees and said, My Lord, my God. Now, I realize this is all absolutely huge claims. John realises this is an astonishing thing to claim. That's why he's written a whole book of evidence. And most of the evidence is still to come. Remember, this is the opening statement of the case. This is where we hear what he's trying to prove. And then over the weeks, we'll we'll get the evidence that persuaded him and the other witnesses. But actually here, we do get one bit of testimony, don't we? Verse 6 and 7. There is one first bit of evidence, John the Baptist, this witness sent by God to testify about the light. And you'd hope there would be some pretty big signposts, wouldn't you? Like if God really has arranged it, that his eternal son has stepped into human history, you'd really hope that there were some markers that we don't miss it. In fact, Jesus will say the whole of the Old Testament, he says this in John 5, all of that was about me building up to me. So in the Old Testament, the Bible, there's loads of promises about God, loads of prophecies. But on top of that, Jesus sent John the Baptist, a warm-up act, a forerunner. Someone so that it was really hard to miss Jesus because he pointed right at him. And why, verse 7, did God bother with an extra witness on top of the scriptures? Well, verse 7, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. God laid a lot of groundwork for Jesus and added John the Baptist so that you could believe in Jesus, so that you could be sure, you could know what God's like, know that Jesus is the way to God, the truth about God, the life, gives the life that God offers. And then verse 14, we get our first hint of the apostles, these these witnesses, disciples of Jesus The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. God made sure there were plenty of witnesses, people who would write John's Gospel and the other Gospel accounts, so that we here in Edinburgh might believe in the Eternal Son. Which brings us to our third point, the two reactions to Jesus. And you'll see, I've, I've called them shocking reactions, because I think in different ways, they actually, they're both shocking. This is verses 10 to 13. There are two reactions. The first one is this, rejecting Jesus Christ. So verse 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Verse 10, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. the first possible reaction back then and still today to Jesus making God known is to reject him, not receive him. And I've put down it's scandalous. I think if you've understood points one and two, we'll begin to feel how scandalous that reaction actually is. Just think about it, the eternal son, the one on whom all things depend. Every single person depends on him for their life. That person came into history, not unannounced, but with plenty of witnesses. Even John the Baptist, an extra one on top of the scriptures. He didn't just turn up anywhere, he turned up in Israel. The very place, the very people who'd been prepared for hundreds of years, with promises that a Messiah would come, even that God himself would turn up. He came to his own, doubly. They were made by him, they'd been taught by him, and his own did not receive him. Now, I think because we're in the prologue, that's a pretty polite way of putting it. That's pretty understated, isn't it? His own did not receive him. As you read on in John's Gospel, well, we'll discover that what not receiving Jesus looks like, then, was crucifying him. It was a conspiracy to assassinate the Son of God. And it wasn't just Israel, it was the Romans, many Jews, the disciples abandoned him, the crowds bade for him, the leaders took the lead all were complicit in saying, actually, we don't want Jesus. We want to get rid of him. We want to extinguish the light. And still today, you see the same reaction. I don't want anything to do with Jesus. The more I hear, the more I want to push him away. I want to keep him at arm's length. And I think we, sh- we should think, Why? Why would people want to get rid of the light? Why would we sometimes, when we hear about Jesus, more about him, kind of want to push him to one side? Surely people would be grateful for some clarity on who God is. Surely we don't want to be agnostic. Do we? Well, do we? This is where things get really personal with John's gospel. You see, it's easy to think that when it comes to knowing God, we are in control of the searchlight. We are kind of scanning the skies for a God who's absent, for a God who's gone AWOL. And we're just honest searchers. But actually, John will say the reality is not that God is hiding. We are hiding. And Jesus will turn the searchlight around onto us. That's actually what verse 9 is getting at, when it says the true light which gives light to everyone. It's talking about shining light onto everyone. So later in chapter 3, Jesus says this. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. See, when Jesus turns up this pure and bright light from God, well, it turns out we want to run and hide. Earlier I described us as ants in a palace or a cathedral. Turns out we're more like spiders or woodlice. You know, you kind of... The light comes on and they will scrabble for a dark corner, unwilling to face our maker. It's that moment, if you're a parent, when you go into a teenager's bedroom and it didn't look that messy in the semi-gloom, but you flick the lights on and suddenly kind of layers and layers and layers of chaos are revealed. It's that moment at a student disco kind of nightclub evening when the house lights come on at 2 a.m. or whatever it is, and suddenly, blinking and embarrassed, everyone's exposed for what they're doing and who they're doing it with. I guess it's that moment on a night police raid when the helicopter, with that extraordinary bright beam, you know, I think they call it a a day sun, good name, suddenly comes onto the suspect, had no idea. Whoa! I thought I got away with it. The true light was coming into the world. Truth, justice, purity. A real demonstration of what humanity should be. The lights came on. He came to his own. And his own people did not receive him. I'd rather run away. It is a real scandal. The people he gave life to killed him they nailed him to a cross made of wood from trees which he'd designed and made, using breath that he was giving them. I mean, it's a scandal. It's, it is shocking once you understand the context. But actually, the other reaction is also startling, I think, in this passage and, and what it leads to. I don't know what you'd think God the Father would do, having sent his son into the world and seen his son killed. By his own. Leave, give up, destroy the world. Well, absolutely amazingly, God decides to adopt some of the people who did it. Some of the people in darkness. Adopt them as his very own children. Just look at it, verse 12. It, and this is where we're going to finish this marvelous promise. Verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Again, the focus is how you respond to Jesus. It's all who receive him, who believe in his name. But notice the strength of language about what follows. When you put your trust in Jesus, what follows? Well, he gives the right to become a child of God. There's no lack of assurance there, is there? No agnosticism. We saw last week or two weeks ago in John 20 that after the resurrection, Jesus calls his disciples, my brothers, and says, my father is your father. It's the most amazing privilege not to have God as some unknown force out there or some person who's angry and I need to run away from, but actually to have him as a father A personal relationship with the living God. That is life to the full, says Jesus. And it is a free gift. So notice verse 13, how that kind of spells that out. Verse 13 is really clear. How do you become a Christian? Well, it's not by blood. So it's not actually being born in the right family tree. This is the thing I was saying that grace, as we've heard earlier, will need to know. She'll need to come to believe in Jesus. That's the way you receive the right to be a child of God. So it's not by blood. It's not by your race or your background or your family. It's not by human effort or even human choice. So nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. Yes, we have to make a decision, but actually the first decision is God's decision. As Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again by God's Holy Spirit. Or as verse 13 here puts it, born of God. Which is why the center of this passage is so startling. We've just heard about the most shocking scandal, that the eternal Son stepped into human history and was rejected by his own, killed by his own. It's the most shocking scandal. And yet, such is the grace of God, God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit, grace upon grace, from his fullness, we've all received grace upon grace, he still chooses to adopt as his children anyone who puts their trust in Jesus. Not because they're innocent, not at all. That's why they need to trust Jesus. But because he chooses to forgive them. Because Jesus paid for them. This is the most extraordinary grace. Grace. I've said a number of times through this morning that at various points, John's gospel bends our brains. How can God be three persons in one God? How can the Son, eternal Son, step into human history? Extraordinary. That he could take on humanity, that he would get hungry and tired, need to eat and sleep. Both of those things are extraordinary, but actually the most extraordinary thing that John's gospel says is that sinful people, people who've rejected God time and time and time and time again, people who've pushed Jesus to, to one side, and I know there are folks here who've been here for ages and are still pushing Jesus to one side. Even someone like that can, can become a child of God, fully adopted, have the same rights to call God Father that the eternal Son has. Actually, that's the most shocking thing in the passage. And John says, I wrote this book to give you enough evidence to know that that offer is true beyond reasonable doubt. Let me pray for us as I close. Father in heaven, we thank you that you did not leave us in the dark. Thank you that your majestic Son, the eternal Word, took on flesh, became flesh, that we might know you, and more than just know information about you, but actually know you as our Father, forgiven with eternal life in his name. Thank you for that. And we pray over these weeks you would convince us to believe that more and more. In Jesus' name, amen.